Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships on True Story FM. Today, what happens when your toaster isn't good enough? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about imposter syndrome in your divorce. What does it mean to see yourself as an imposter? You start to doubt your own abilities and decisions. You'll struggle when it's time to assert your own rights and needs. You'll find you lack confidence in negotiating and making decisions. This week, attorney and fellow podcaster Lauren Abrams joins us to tell her story of 52 Weeks of Hope and how overcoming imposter syndrome can lead to freedom from stress, anxiety, and fear. Lauren, welcome to the toaster. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We're so glad you're here. And I, I feel like this is a, this is a good conversation. You're, because you're a lawyer and a podcaster. That's very exciting. Uh, hmm, sounds uh, but strangely also, familiar. It's weirdly <laughs> familiar. It's eerie, eerie <laughs> silence in the room. Um, I want to talk about how, how you feel about yourself can impact your divorce. And you actually had uh, brought this, this question, like to talk about, imposter syndrome and how living in this state of imposter syndrome can impact your the way your divorce plays out. Can you introduce us to the topic and, and uh, kick us off? Sure. Well, imposter syndrome is when you feel like you're a fake or a fraud, like you're going to get found out. And um, it's really fear. And you have to feel the feelings. If you don't feel your feelings, it's going to come out someplace else. And it could come out just like stress. It's going to come out in your body someplace. There's all kinds of studies and everything else that show that if you don't feel your feelings, it's it just will. It'll come out in some other manner. And usually in a negative manner, right, Lauren? It's never a healthy manner. Oh, no, definitely (laughs) not. It's stuffing your feelings, all that stuff. I mean, I didn't grow up talking about my feelings. I mean, I still have to like Google feelings list and go, yeah, it's that one sometimes. Well, here's the thing. Like when you when you talk about imposter syndrome, this whole idea of feeling like an imposter when you start to to doubt your own abilities, you're, you doubt your own ability to exist in your skin and do the things that are being asked of you. I look at, first of all, just just in the in the space of vulnerability for the two of you, I have never looked at a lawyer and said, man, I'll bet they really feel imposter syndrome at any given point. It feels like if you really are able to internalize imposter syndrome, you don't become a lawyer. Do you, I mean, do you guys feel that way? I could, that's such a good question because I can remember practicing a good 10 years, walking down a corridor of a courtroom and thinking, look at all these people. They think I'm a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I went to good law (laughs) schools. I put myself through school. And yet, I think I've got them fooled. <laughs> like, what? Even when I started my podcast a couple of years ago, I can remember being on a Zoom for a legal reason and thinking all those little squares, you can tell when people are on their phone and, and two little squares talking to each other. I think they're talking to each other. Who knows who they're talking to? And I'm like, they're, ta- they're thinking about me. They're talking to each other going, did you hear? Lauren started a podcast. Who does she think she is starting a podcast? When I became that person thinking people are talking about me, um, and everything else, that's imposter syndrome. And eventually I realized nobody's talking about me. Nobody cares that I started a podcast and it has nothing to do with my legal profession, by the way, at all. And, 
you know, it, nobody is talking about you at all. You know, you have to feel the feeling, walk through it and keep going. So the whole thing, and, and with a divorce, I mean, I'm sure Seth will talk about this more than anyone else. When you think, well, I won't be able to do that. Yes, you can. On that point, Pete, I'm going to let out a big secret here. Do it. People in the general public think lawyers are smart. I assure you, <laughs> that is not always the case. <laughs> yeah. If you want to be a lawyer, there is a law school that will take your money and you will go to law school and then you will take a bar exam prep course and you will pass the bar. Well, I could top that. People think judges are smart. My biggest disappointment <sighs> in law was judges. <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, I, I think that's really important. And I think it's important to get uh, get it out early that what we're talking about here is not a legal thing. It's not a it, like it, it's not a, a, an inferiority thing. It's a human thing. So I've written a lot about it. It's there's a quiz on my website. I don't think you need a quiz. You know, when you've got it, you you feel like you're going to get found out. It's a feeling. Michelle Obama talks about it. Meryl Streep said no matter what movie she made, every time she'd make a new movie, she thought now they're going to find out I can't act. Um, Maya Angelou used to talk about it when she was alive. I mean, very high-performing women talk openly about it. Cheryl Sandberg, in her book, she talked about it. You're in a very good quality of people, if you really like that. So my question then comes down to, from, from your perspectives, how does imposter syndrome, how can you as a, a divorcing couple, let's say, or a divorcing individual, how can imposter syndrome impact your divorce and what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, I think it would come into play into anything you're doing. Where I see it, Pete, there will be some clients that are like doing everything they can just to juggle everything, right? And usually that would be moms. Okay. They're trying to work, trying to get the kids. There was all these social pressures on them. I think women do a great job, generally speaking, supporting each other. There's more support groups in, in our space talking about divorce. There's a lot more female voices than male voices. But also, I think generally speaking, that sometimes women will then judge women more harshly than guys will judge guys. Guys are like, whatever, he's an idiot, and they move on. Okay. So how does this play into imposter syndrome? When they're juggling it all, they're like, oh my God, if I go to court, they're going to find out that I really can't handle all this shit, right? Or maybe I am, am I, am I a bad mom? I'm trying to be a good mom. I'm doing this. I'm doing PTA. I'm doing, uh, I'm going to all the events. I'm packing the lunches. I'm, I'm packing the orange peels for breaks at practice. I'm, I'm doing all the homework or kids need therapy. I'm getting there like, maybe I really can't handle it. Maybe I'm just going through the motions. And I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but deep down, maybe I'm not a good mom. Maybe it's because the dad keeps saying that she's doing it all wrong all the time, right? So she doesn't feel like she can do it. I'm going to get found out. And we all know, oh, yeah, we're going to court. I'm going to air that dirty laundry. And people think that people just sit there all day and look through the court file about all the bad shit that people say about each other. And I tell people, people don't even know how to find it. And if they did, they don't care. If they really tried to get it, they got to go down to the courthouse because if in Hillsborough County in Florida, most of these records are confidential. You can't just pull them offline necessarily. Um, some you can, some you can't. So that's where I see a lot of it where like, am I going to get deposed? They're going to find out. 
I'm not as good as I'm saying I'm going to be. Am I going to have to go to court? They're going to find out. It, what am I going to tell my lawyer about this? Because if I tell my lawyer, oh my God, is he going to represent me? Is she going to represent me? If they know that I'm, I don't think I'm that good, well, how does that play? It's so fear-based. Yeah. I see it a lot in how it manifests itself in really different ways, depending on, on the client and their situation. You have to tell your lawyer everything because the lawyer can't be blind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is this gets to my curiosity around some of the impacts of of living in this this space of uncertainty as a potential client is how it can be paralyzing, right? It can paralyze you and stall you in being able to what? Negotiate through mediation to make decisions uh, in a timely manner to support your own case. Like it feels like all of these things like the emotional weight of of your own self-image of just waiting to be found out can really stall the process. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to flip the coin on this now. Take the guy that owns his own business and he's doing well and he's buying flashy stuff. And a lot of that is because it's materialistic society. That's what he's into, whatever. But it's also like, oh my God, I'm going to get found out because my business isn't as good. It's going to go down. Now, every single judge on every single divorce case has always heard the guy that owns the business, the business is on its way down. It's never going up in a divorce. No one comes and say, Judge, I pocketed 12 million, but next year we're going to hit 20. No one says that, right? They say 12 million was an anomaly, Judge. We couldn't believe it. We're going to be down to three if we're lucky next year, okay? But part of those guys, when they're making more money than they could ever imagine, they think like, how am I here? Like this, the charade is going to come off. I'm going to lose it all. And now you're asking this guy to pay X number of dollars in alimony because under the law, that's what he's required to pay. But he's like, it's an illusion. It's all going to go away. And he's very, and I tell him, well, if it goes away, we can come back and modify. So it works in all different interesting ways. And that's part of being the counsel at law to figure out where people's fears are and how do you discuss those fears because we're making a deal today that could go on for a very long time and things change over time. That's, that's I'm paralyzed just thinking, thinking about it, trying to empathize through it, because how do you like it's something we've talked about on the show in the past, like part of what it takes to get over this particular hump is is being able to develop a new set of muscles under stress and anxiety and fear. And those are the muscles that tell you, hey, right now I need to live in fact and truth. I need to live in only what I know to be true and not the story that I'm telling myself about it. How do you develop that muscle? Now, I know, Lauren, you, uh, in, in your sort of background, you overcome your own sort of stories there. Like, how do you, what, what can you learn through? And, and maybe you want to introduce 52 Weeks of Hope at this point is what, what can you teach us about developing that new set of muscles uh, to be able to respond to under stress and anxiety and, and do so authentically and clearly. And, and that's where all the tools of, because you've probably, if you're getting divorced, you've been hearing what a piece of shit you are. You're no good. I mean, you've been, you've been fighting right? <laughs> and you've probably been hearing it for a while. So hopefully you do have really good girlfriends or guys. I mean, I, I actually have interviewed certain men and they need support groups. Men really do. It's so true what you were saying, Seth, that the guys are like, yeah, get over it or whatever. I mean, I interviewed a relationship coach 
um, especially during the pandemic on lockdown, when he was saying the girls need to give the guys a break. They want to marry you on the second date for a reason. They have no one <laughs> at all. And uh, they have no one to talk to. Because um, I was asking him how he was doing with his guy groups. He goes, what are you kidding? He used his wife. My wife has book club. She has PTA. She has this. She has that. He goes, I'm with the kids. <laughs> and that's when it got a little bit dark. He was talking about the guys have nothing, but, and the girls, like they talk about everything and, and they move on. So it's sort of natural, they like naturally fostering community. And, yeah, it, yeah. It's so true. I like to think that next generations, the guys aren't like that. I, I see my son and, and they seem to talk a lot more, but I don't know. It, it depends on the person. Anyway, there's a lot of tools you can do. One really simple, which I is affirmations. You feel like an SNL skit, but really looking in the mirror and telling yourself how great you are, it works. There's a reason people do it. Um, it goes back to Louise Hay is what I know it from. Looking in the mirror and saying, I love you. I'm great. I am a worthy person. Um, it may sound, it may sound however it sounds, but they work. Well, let's talk about that. I like to hit these like uncomfortable stuff where people saying, really, does that work? It works. It's okay to give yourself compliments. You will beat yourself up all the time over stuff that you, that you are being critical of yourself on. And I don't know why I keep saying on the flip side of the coin today, but the flip side of that coin is then why is it weird to give yourself a compliment? That's such a good point. I'm going to steal that. You know what? I've never actually said that. I talk about affirmations all the time. I never talk about how it's perfect. It's okay. I, I mean, Lauren, the Pete's skin is crawling. When yeah. you compliment something, I say it, Pete hates yeah. it. Sorry, Pete. It does, but you know what? That's a hundred percent projection because as you're talking about this, I realize how shitty I am at taking compliments. Like I can't do it. So how could I possibly give myself a compliment? I can't stand it when other people talk about me like that. Right. For the next 24 hours, see if you can give yourself 10 compliments. But it's looking in the mirror and not saying, oh, I have wrinkles here next to my eyes. It's not looking at, for me, my hair. Like, Why is my it's skin not- stained like yeah. that? That's weird. Like, yeah, Sunspots. I can do that all day yeah. long. Um, it's none, none of that. It's looking in your eye out loud saying, I love you. I am a worthy person. You know, whatever it is that, that you, wherever you need it, then. First, you have to notice your, you have to notice the negative self-talk. It's really important to first, the first step is noticing the negative self-talk. I started doing this on small stuff. I, I mean, I wouldn't even say like I'm worthy, like these kind of what I would say generalized statements. I would say stuff like, man, that was a really nice omelet I made my son today. Is that simple <laughs> as it is? Like, yeah. and I would ask, well, how's that? I was like, that is really good. And I would think to myself, that was a good omelet. I made a good omelet. And, and that's like when I, I mean, I remember this from years and years and years ago when, when he was little and I was trying to put nice food on the table because I wasn't a good cook. I hadn't really cooked. I hadn't learned to cook. But every meal I put on that plate for that kid and he was three and a half, four years old, I made it look fun. I would cut up the apples and put it around the outside of the, the dish right? It's just cut up apples. But, and I was always trying to do a nice presentation and I'd say, look, this might be mac and cheese on the inside and apples around the outside, but I made it look nice. And I would compliment myself because I was learning how to, you know, one, get a kid to eat, which is a struggle in of itself. But being a a dad that was taking care of a three-year-old and I was like, okay, I'm on, got to put on meals on the table. So giving those little compliments to yourself I think help build my own confidence and realize I can do this. Absolutely. So affirmations is a simple way. 
journaling to get to five minutes even. Five minutes. Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> because I love journaling and Seth is a noted antagonist. <laughs> journaling. I mean, the best the best tools of all are journaling and meditation. So I'm just going to get those out right away. If you guys want to laugh, go, you know, like. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm all on board that train. Journaling and meditation are the best tools of all. People say, well, why do you meditate? And I say, because no matter what's going on, it gets you okay with everything going on, even if it's five minutes a day. Although I have a whole thing. If meditation and exercise are the things that like the endorphins, go, like it gets you, nothing makes me feel better than exercise and meditation. So I don't understand why I don't do them 20 times a day, but I don't. Seth, you meditate, right? You've done some meditation. I have. Okay. So it's just the journaling that doesn't work for you. And I, I mischaracter, I unfairly characterize you for the joke, but I, I know you're not much of a journaler, but it's not like you don't have a mindfulness practice yourself. Well, yeah, I would, I would appreciate that. But I did do a journal entry about meditation. So, <laughs> so yeah, that actually counts as two. <laughs> right. That's good. That's no, point. so, so Lauren, our, our laughter is that Pete's an excellent writer and he he enjoys journaling he he really believes it and that's just not how i get my emotions out and so that's why we, we were laughing but we certainly agree that it's a great form um of exercising your brain and to get things out and emotionally it's very healthy for you i'm not just and i'm just saying it's not my thing yeah no, no I, i'm gonna i want to just add one thing to journaling in terms of a journaling practice mm -hmm. and and i i'm thinking about it because of the subject of imposter syndrome and, and developing muscles like developing these new sort of emotional muscles takes takes practice and i i there is something to when i started using uh, a template right i have this little keystroke template tool that i just type a few keystrokes and it, it gives me essentially a list of questions to answer every day just like three questions that i can address every day so i'm not completely free forming it i can actually put some thought into the things that are giving me trouble today and if i'm living in a space of imposter syndrome i can really see uh, the benefit of saying like how are you showing up authentically what you know giving yourself that compliment of the day in the form of a journal to see how you trend over time i'm huge on like tr uh, tracking trends i I love seeing that about myself. I wear the Apple Watch. I do the thing. I track the health data. I track the meditation data. I love that stuff. And there is really something to watching yourself through the artifact of your past journals develop the ability to talk to yourself more effectively over time. Am I just like, is, does that make any sense at all? It made total sense, completely. And if somebody isn't journaling and you want to get to the truth of something, write a question at the top of the page and then handwrite it out. They say handwriting is going straight from the heart to through the pen to the paper to get to your answer. So that's a good way to get just to your truth. If you're beating yourself up and you need to get some self-worth, the truth is you're great. And if there's something you really want to do, everyone has their own unique handprint. Nobody can do what you can do the way you can do it. So the imposter syndrome, it, it's not true. Anytime you're going to start doing something new, be it, be a divorced parent or, you know, go after some goal or dream you really want to do, imposter syndrome is going to rear its ugly head and tell you, who do you think you are doing that at some point? And so you have to feel it and then walk through it and have people around you saying, oh no, you've got this. You want those people, not your ex, not your ex, <laughs> not your ex. 
According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, about 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. Seth, horrible. It's horrible. We've talked about it before. So what do we do about this, especially in the divorce case? We want to make sure that your children are safe and with a sober parent, but we also want to help the child maintain a positive relationship with both parents. You don't want one parent quizzing the child about what happens at the other parent's house. Was he drinking? Was she, was she drinking? Did she get in the car? What's going on? So how do we balance one of the hardest thing in navigating a divorce and a custody litigation? Soberlink. What is Soberlink? Soberlink is a device. looks like a breathalyzer, but it's more than a breathalyzer. It measures your alcohol uh, in your system at just the right time. When you are about to drive with your kids, when you're doing the drop-offs, when you're doing carpool, whatever the case, if you want to share real-time data of your uh, experience and not experience with alcohol at just the right time, you use Soberlink. Little device. It has a facial recognition camera on it, so you can... it absolutely knows that it's you blowing into the device at when you blow into it. There are two models. One is cellular, so it can just send your data off without the need of a cell phone. The other is a a Bluetooth connection to your phone, requires your phone to work. Either case, you're getting real-time data about your use of alcohol when you need it. And that data goes straight to your co-parent. So if you blow into that device and it comes up that you have a blood alcohol content higher than you're supposed to have or any at all, they're allowed to come get the kids. Why? Keep them safe. But more importantly, when you blow into that device and it shows 0.00, that's going to hold up in court. You're going to say, look, I'm with my kids. I'm not drinking. And then you're going to move forward and do what's really important. That's spending time with the kids. So you can sign up, receive $50 off your device. Just visit soberlink.com slash toaster. We really appreciate Soberlink sponsoring this show. There is a body of people that individually, when you talk to them, they will tell you that they dealt with imposter syndrome, and it's people in our Congress. People that get elected to the House of Representatives, when they first get there, it's not uncommon to think, oh my God, what am I doing here? Yeah, yeah. who did I think I was? Right, who, who am I to be making it? And then they've been there a month, and they're like, what the fuck are all these other people doing here? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but no, I think it happens a lot in different professions. When you sit at a, a, a board meeting, and you first get elected to a board, you're like, what am I doing here? People are like putting me in this leadership position. If you're in any new endeavor, even if you just got a job, and you're like, oh my God, like, really? They're paying me this? And like... It, it happens. It it happens a lot, and because we can be so critical of ourselves, it it is I think more prevalent in our society and isn't talked about as much as it should be. That's very true. And people are are so afraid to make a mistake. And I think it was Einstein, and I, I could have this wrong a little bit, but he basically was in front of a class. And he added a very long series of numbers together and he was just rattling them off. And he did this by design. And then he said, yeah, one plus one is three. And everybody talked about how he missed one plus one is three, right? It was the wrong answer. Should have been two, obviously. But no one talked about the complicated ones that he did right. We always point out the negative and you do that in yourself. And that builds to this imposter syndrome. Yeah. No, it's true. As attorneys... 
do you find you have to step into that emotional battle in your client's divorce process? Do you, do you ever find you have to say, look, like the talk to a client the way you're talking, you're, you're sort of asking us to talk to ourselves? Oh, I've had clients that have listened to the podcast and they say, well, Seth, I feel like I know you. I know your voice. I know what you're going to say. I talk the same way to clients that I talk on this show. Now, I might meet them at their level or explain things a little differently or be harder on some clients than other because the way that they take in information, right? Some people are like, oh, send me an email. Some people are like, shoot me a text. Some people are like, no, give me a call on the phone, right? Some people are like, don't hear me unless I write them a very clear, long letter saying, take my advice. Some people need me to say, you're being stupid. That's the emotional side of you. Let's get back to the legal side, right? So there's different ways that you have to meet them at their level. It's the same conversation. And I don't practice family law at all, but um, I definitely, I definitely <laughs> uh, speak to my clients the same. I'm like, you need to clear out space and make room for other things. I will always speak to clients the same way. I, I'm the same person everywhere, pretty much. I mean... I will speak from a somewhat spiritual level, somewhat. Well, let's use that opportunity to introduce uh, formally 52 Weeks of Hope. Tell us about your podcast. Why'd you start it? What are you doing there? You don't practice family law. What's a non-family <laughs> law attorney doing something as heart-centered as a podcast called 52 yeah. Weeks of Hope? 52 Weeks of Hope is where people talk about the hardest challenge they've overcome, how they did it, and give a message of hope. And it started from my own dark night of the soul. I'm somebody who's always very grateful. Another tool I use is I exchange gratitude lists every day. It's been exchanging it with my friend for 14 years. And um, daily, she does hers at night. I do mine in the morning. And um, there's a lot of other people now that are part of our gratitude chain too. Once I got through, the only way through is through. Everybody goes through their stuff. Once I got through this particular one, I was like, what the hell was that? And then I was like, why are we here? And I went through that whole kind of uh, thing. Like we go through these things and I'm busy. I was raising single mom, raising both kids. I was given full custody. And uh, I decided I was going to ask a much older demographic, what have you gleaned from living life? They say nobody on their deathbed ever wished they worked harder, made more money. So I wanted to know what these people, tell me, what have you learned? Just for my own, it's as close as I come to DIYing, if that's a word. Um, I'm not a DIYer. It is now. I, yeah. We're good. I'm not a DIYer, <laughs> but, um, and so I started interviewing a person a week, just going and talking to them and people would divulge really personal information to me. I'm not a shrink or anything, but they would tell me probably all my depot skills, right? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, but I would just go and I would talk to these people. And after about two and a half months, I was like, this is so rich. It's so good. I have to share it. There were started being really common themes. And I thought I'd write one of these books where you open up, you're like, that's just what I need to hear. Or you close it and you open it again. You're like, no, that's what I need to hear and call it 52 weeks of hope. And then COVID hit and the pandemic came and I started podcasting and I really never even listened to podcasts like maybe Oprah or Brene Brown. That was kind of it. Anyway, so I started podcasting, fell in love with it, wasn't confined to Los Angeles anymore, and I've never looked back. And I didn't put the book out. I have a few of the chapters on my website. And uh, after 52 weeks, my first 52 weeks episode, I compiled all the messages of hope into eight overarching themes, and I call it the meaning of life. I'm like, okay, now I know. <laughs> so that is the podcast. And now I'm a couple years in. 
Yeah, I was going to say, you really have uh, screwed up your the podcast yeah, right. name. I mean, 126 <laughs> Weeks of Hope yeah. doesn't have the same kind of ring to it. But there is a rich bounty of uh, interview material in this show. And congratulations on uh, a healthy, long run. Thank you. Of great interviews. That's It's great to have... It's great to, it's always great to have other podcasters on the show, but particularly attorney podcasters, pretty, pretty rarefied air. I'm just a little worried the next time I listen to your podcast, it's going to be Pete talking about how he had to deal with me and how to get over it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Apropos of nothing, we'll get in touch about that schedule later. Uh, Hey, this has been really great. Well, so we'll put the link to the podcast uh, in the show. What's and your website you want people to visit? Uh, Yeah, everything's on the website. It's 52 weeks, 52weeksofhope.com, the number 52. Very easy. And right now we're offering free clarity and confidence boost sessions. So, um, and there's a clarity and confidence growth scorecard on there too. A little checklist of things you can do over 21 day period. There you have it. 52 weeks of hope. Number 52. Uh, check it out. Thank you so much, Lauren, for your uh, participation today. Uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. Uh, give yourself some confidence. Look yourself in the eye, in the mirror. Give yourself some confidence and then go journal about it. On behalf of Lauren Abrams and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, the divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.